Amen. I love Christmas songs. It's so good. Uh, thank you and welcome for being here. Wait, that's kind of weird. Thank you for being here. Welcome. There we go to Hope Lower Town. Uh, my name is Paul Stiver. I am one of the elders here at Hope Lower Town. And it is my joy, my privilege to get to preach today in week five now of our prayers sermon series, looking at different prayers in the Bible, uh, not necessarily just to emulate them, but to learn from them, learn what they teach us about who God is and what he's done for us. And if you notice, our logo now is adorned with uh, ornaments and a Christmas tree for the series because uh, we are now in three weeks of Christmas prayers. Um, but before we get into that, I wanted to just say, why, why sermons? Why study the word at all? Why come to church on a Sunday and sit and listen to God's word being taught? And I actually wanna grab a random verse from the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church that he has started uh, in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, it says this. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. So we see this word as being received it's, it's being heard from human communicators and accepted not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God. And then that word is capable of bringing about real change. It's at work in those who believe this word of God. So when we come on a Sunday morning and sit under the word, we're in a sense admitting in a week that where we go through the week and all we hear is you are your own authority. You're in charge of your life. You determine what is best for you. We come and we sit under God's word and we say, I need you, God, as an outside authority to change me, to work in me. So that is why, and he does. He's faithful to do so. That is why sermons, one reason why, there's many reasons why. Uh, all right, let's get into it. Uh, let's load this sermon. What, <laughs> what does anyone know what this is called? Uh, this picture, this is, all right, we got crickets. Is there crickets in here? This is, a, just kidding. This is called a buffer icon. Tell me what emotions you're feeling right now when you see this buffer icon. Yeah, just a thumbs down, the thumbs down. We, we can't handle this, why? Because it is us having to wait. We are terrible at waiting. This is why Domino's introduced the pizza tracker so I can place my order, but then I can log in to the app and know when my pizza is in the oven and then when it's on its way to me. Thank you, Domino's. Uh, that's also, so if you do Spotify at the end of the year, you're waiting to get your rap. You're waiting to learn what songs that I listen to most, what genres. Uh, and for many of us, like this guy, uh, his top listened to artist is my own intrusive thoughts. Uh, so he has a million hours listened to his own intrusive thoughts. Uh, he was in the top 0.05% of listeners. Um, we, uh, we wait in traffic jams. Uh, this is often the face I make in a traffic jam. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting because then you, it's really where you learn trap more than anything, maybe traffic, uh, how little you like to wait and how much your character is revealed in that. Just go, let me in. We can't, we hate traffic. Um, we actually have like an indignation. Don't you know who I am? I need to get to where I need to go. Uh, we can, 
uh, live by our calendar. Many of us kind of live by the Google calendar, the Apple calendar, uh, if that's what it's called, iCal. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting because there's kind of good and bad, right? We look forward, we're waiting. I'm going to see this person, this friend. So I'm looking forward to seeing them, but there's also the bad. And, and this is more how I relate to my calendar, where it's, oh, that thing's coming up. I just want to get past that thing. For me, it's always dentist appointment. I'm like, gosh, I just can't wait till it's over. I'm going to get Hardee's because there's a Hardee's right by our dentist and I get Hardee's every, every time. I'm a little treat, a little treat for myself for having to suffer. Um, and then, but, uh, but we kind of almost start to live to get past a big project or a thing at work or, or whatever it might be. Um, and we, this, this, is, this is our culture. We are a culture that seeks to minimize waiting. If you recall, Black Friday, the big day of shopping, used to be the Friday after Thanksgiving. And as this ad shows us, it is now month long. Why wait to capture all the deals, which uh, were just last year's price anyway? Why wait? Um, so we, we can't, we just, even in Christmas time, a season of waiting, life has been minimized. I think Advent calendars also show us this. Advent calendars uh, kind of come with like a chocolate or a bottle of wine. Don't do the wine one. That's too much wine for a month. Just don't. But, uh, right? And each day we take out a new chocolate because we want a surrogate satisfaction while we're waiting for the real thing of Christmas. Um, so those are kind of some fun things that we wait on or, and fun ways to think about it. And uh, just to kind of shift gears a little bit, today we're going to be looking at our first prayer in the Christmas prayers, which is Hannah's prayer of praise from the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. Uh, and I want to highlight and shift gears a little because there are, uh, along with funny things and things that happen, there's very real things that we wait on and we wait for, that can be very hard. Uh, and so we're gonna look at something that's very hard. Um, and in that, then we're gonna see something. Uh, waiting is actually universal. It's a universal human experience. We're all in some way waiting on something. Uh, and so we similarly experience despair, hope, all of the spectrum of emotions as we wait. We are not unique in that. We're gonna learn from Hannah the theologian as she experiences a season of waiting, and then she rejoices in prayer. So we're going to get into that uh, in the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. And before we do, I just want to highlight um, why narrative. Uh, and, and especially in this book, they're going to introduce a big character, Samuel, who's going to be a prophet, big leader in Israel. But it doesn't, the book doesn't start with, and here was Samuel, here's who Samuel is. The book actually starts with a narrative because narrative is there to tell us something. And so we're going to learn from that context. But for even further context, I want to highlight the book of Judges, Judges 21-25. And where we are in the story of the Bible and Israel's history is that Israel has kind of rejected God. They don't have a leader. And it says this in Judges 21-25. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They lived by their own authority. They had no leader. They had no hope. It was complete chaos. You could wonder at this time, is God going to fulfill his promises? Is God even with us? And that's where we are. And then the book of Ruth comes, which gives us a glimmer of hope. And the book of 1 Samuel comes. And we get this narrative. It says this in 1 Samuel 1. There was a certain man from Amathim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, 
and Ephraimite. You just say it like you know it and people think you know stuff. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penaniah. Penaniah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penaniah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. I was reading about this just briefly. I'll interject. I was reading about this and this would actually be a reminder of her childlessness to get this extra. Verse six, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival, Penaniah, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year when she would get this double portion. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. That seems really weird out of context. We'll get into that more in a second. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli, the priest there, uh, observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I didn't know that was in there even, this weird translation. All right. I was pouring out my soul, or tequila, or why is that? Just wine. Okay. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. So some words that have described Hannah's experience, her prayer. Great anguish, weeping bitterly, grief, deeply troubled. For women in the ancient Near East, the time that this was written, um, fertility was central to their identity because it was a rural society. You needed offspring to work the land, to prosper, which is why her rival provokes her and which makes it so painful. She's experiencing something that is tragic, both physically and spiritually. Be remiss not to uh, acknowledge uh, that this may be your experience, infertility. I want you to know that it is one of the deepest pains you can experience as a human being. And here as a church, uh, it, we are not unfamiliar to that kind of pain and we want to be here for you. Don't go through that alone. So in the sense it is, yes, a unique, very unique struggle. And yet at the same time, we can relate. All of us have something in our lives that we feel like we are waiting on 
or waiting for that causes us despair and at times hope. We all have deep pains, tragic experiences. We all have something that we wait on. So with that said, we're going to look at a biblical theology of barrenness. This is a theme that comes up quite often in the Bible, infertility. And a biblical theology, all we're doing is saying, let's look through the the storyline as it progresses. What does it reveal? What does it unfold? Like a movie that becomes more clear as you move from act one to two to three. The Bible operates like a story that gives us more insight. So starting in Genesis 1, we see that God creates mankind, male and female, and blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply. You are my image bearers, and I want you to create more image bearers so that my glory would spread across the face of the earth, that people that represent and resemble me would be visible across all the earth, that I would get glory. But as we see in the story, Genesis 3.16 happens. We're going to look at that one. And then later, Genesis 11.30 says that Sarai was barren. And right after it tells us that Sarai was barren, God promises that Abraham will have an offspring, Abram at the time, will have an offspring that through all the world we will be blessed. But first they take things into their own hands. And Abram has a child with Hagar, that is Ishmael. And then they wait on God's promise and Isaac, the child of promise, comes when Sarah is a hundred years old. And they laugh and rejoice. And then in Genesis 25, similarly, Rebecca's womb is closed, the, the word says. And then eventually Isaac prays for her. God opens her womb and Esau and Jacob, these two nations come. And in the line of Jacob, that seed who was going to bless the whole world will continue on. In Judges 13, we see the story of Samson. We will also look at that one. So, but getting back to this, Genesis 3.16 says this, to the woman he said, now this is after sin has entered the world, to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So we're seeing sin and then result of of separation from God. And one of those things is now pain and childbearing. And Brian has been keen to point out throughout the years, this doesn't just mean delivery. This means all of the hurt, all of the pain, all of the distress, the pain of miscarriages and infertility, all of these things are swept up into this umbrella of pain and childbearing because now sin is causing disruption to what God has intended. God created so that life would spread. But sin has disrupted that. Again, on the theme of barrenness, we see the story of Samson. A certain man, in Judges 13, it says this, a certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never going to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So this is not a new theme, this childlessness, by the time we get to Hannah. We see this here. They're looking for a leader. God allows this woman to be childless and then gives her a child. And this child is going to be a deliverer 
for the Israelite people. No razor to touch his head, which we all know uh, in the story of Samson, very famous, his hair does get cut because he loses his dedication to the Lord. But what we see in this story is that God has a purpose for this. We're going to see that. We saw that Nazarite vow. It's the same that Samuel takes. No razor shall touch his head. He's going to be dedicated to the Lord. Continuing on now in the Hannah narrative, Eli here answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Sometimes this passage, I have friends that have struggled with infertility and they have this passage kind of used as a hammer against them. The couple didn't know they were doing it, but they said, just pray and this will change. We have no guarantee of that. We see God, though, using this for his purposes. And we're going to see that more as the story goes on. But we see here, I want us to notice these words. The Lord remembered her. We see this similarly when God remembers his people suck in oppression in the Exodus. God remembers his people. Karen Jobes in a comment, in a, actually an article in the Westminster Theological Journal says this. In all these instances, all these instances we're going to see past and, and, and other ones we're going to look at, barrenness is presented as an historical fact in the personal lives of great people of Israel's past. In every biblical case, barrenness was deliberately and purposefully overcome by God, and the barren woman produced a son who became a hero in Israel's history. So there's something about God's faithfulness in the past that is to be recalled when we see this. Continuing on in the Hannah narrative, it says, when her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, this would have been about a three-year period, I will take him and present him before the Lord and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his words. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. So she had three years, but she's keeping in her mind, he's going to the house of the Lord to live there always. Continuing on, it says, after, she, after he was weaned, Samuel, she took the boy with her, young as he was. That gets me. <laughs> young as he was. She's going to give up her son. Along with the three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, which was tradition there when you offered the child, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to him, pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. 
Hannah waits on a deliverance only God can provide. A son who will, in a sense, be her righteousness. And when she has that son in her faith, she gives that son back to God. She gives up her only son. That's the end of the narrative. And now we move to her prayer. Here's what she prays, starting in 1 Samuel 2, verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor for the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven and the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah's prayer shows us all these great reversals, all these things that seem hopeless that God flips on their head. She is a theologian and she is a prophetess and she points us forward to something. If you look at verse 10 right there, Hannah calls God's shot. She says, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That word anointed there is a word we hear a lot in the Christmas season. It means Messiah, God's promised king. She's saying one day, God's gonna bring a great reversal and that he's gonna exalt his Messiah. So just as we conclude this kind of section, who is Samuel? Samuel is a heaven-sent child. He's dedicated to the Lord all of his life. He's a prophet. He's a judge. He leads Israel away from idols. But he's not the final deliverer. There's going to be a thousand more years of spiritual barrenness in Israel and the world's history. Which leads us to the question, how is Hannah's prayer about Christmas? I thought this was Christmas prayers. It is. Let's go back to our theme of biblical theology of barrenness here. So we saw 1 Samuel 1 and 2. Moving forward in the story, we're going to look at Isaiah 54, which we're not going to look at Galatians 4, but we're going to talk about it. And then Luke 1, we're going to see a, a couple different births, Elizabeth with John the Baptist and Mary. And then we're going to come back and consider Romans 8. So we're continuing on in the storyline of the Bible. We get to the prophet Isaiah further in the story. And at one point, after he mentions a suffering servant who's come into the world, he's going to say, Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song. Shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. 
says the Lord. Again, Karen Job says this. Isaiah, however, totally transforms the theme of barrenness. So we're following this theme and Isaiah is gonna do something different with it. Isaiah's transformation of this theme prepares its way for the startling use by Paul in Galatians 4. Isaiah used this theme as it had never been previously used and radically transformed it in two ways. The first one here, from the story of the birth of a child to the birth of a people. According to Calloway, another commentator, Job's continues, Isaiah uses the theme of barrenness not to speak now of God's past faithfulness to his people as the Pentateuch does or as we saw, but to proclaim a future manifestation of God's power. Paul grabs onto this reversal, this future manifestation in Galatians 4 to say, there's really two ways to live. This is what Paul says in Galatians 4. There's really two ways to live. And we see it actually from the Bible storyline. You can live in a way that is self-reliant. We call that law. Paul calls that slavery. Or you can live in a way that is God-reliant. We call that faith. Experiencing new birth. A life of trust. pointing to future manifestation of God's power, God uses the barrenness theme to show us that there are some things in life that are not in our control and that only God has the power to change. There's some things only God can do and that teaches us actually in our times of waiting where we so quickly go to our own hands to remove the discomfort and the stress. It teaches us that he's actually worthy of our worship and our trust. Because this future manifestation of God's power is Christmas. This picture here, if you're not familiar with it, has Eve and Mary. Eve in shame, naked, in a sense exposed, uncovered. And Mary takes her hand and puts it on Mary's stomach, where Christ is. Mary stepping on the head of the serpent because Christ crushes the head of the serpent. This future manifestation of God's power begins at Christmas when Christ comes into the world, continues through his life. Something different is happening when Jesus is in the world. And then through his death and resurrection, Luke 1 has these two divine births. Elizabeth, who is barren and then gives birth to John the Baptist, and Mary, who is not barren, but gives birth to the Christ so that God can teach us that he's gonna birth a new people. How? Through this son. Through the son who will undo the barrenness and spiritual tragedy that is this world, a son who will deliver us. Jesus is the greater Samuel the truly heaven-sent child who is God himself, God's only son, who God gives to us, who is dedicated to the Lord all of his life and delivers a people from greater enemies, sin, death, and the devil. A son who becomes our righteousness. We say this often here, but this is the good news of the gospel. What Martin Luther calls the great exchange, that on the cross, I give all my sin to Christ. 
And he gives me all of his righteousness that I am clothed in Christ. I'm okay in Jesus. I can draw near to God, not because I walked my way there or earned my way there, but precisely because I didn't. And God instead gives me his righteousness. That's the deliverance only God could provide. That we cannot make ourselves righteous, but Christ does. The Son, the promised Son, the Messiah does. So then what does this have to do with prayer? Prayer then is God's gift to us, a way of him keeping the lines of communication open as we wait in this world. Again, because waiting is universal. Let's consider it one more time. Dr. Kate Sweeney, she's a PhD who studied um, nurses and she worked with nurses uh, who work with breast cancer patients. Highlighted this. She says, waiting combines two challenging states of mind, not knowing what's coming, uncertainty, and not being able to do much or anything about it. The, in the study, the breast cancer patient said, what's not worse, chemo is not the hard thing. The hard thing is the waiting. Why? Because it brings these things up. A lack of control, it continues, and neither of those are uncomfortable states for humans to be in. Uncertainty, lack of control. And when you combine them into these waiting periods, it really kind of boosts the waiting into this extra suffering kind of state compared to other kinds of stress, which may be difficult in other ways. But waiting does seem to kind of tap into, she says, some existential challenges for humans in that it combines those really challenging states of uncertainty and lack of control waiting for us often brings about crisis because we don't have the power to change our own circumstances. Continuing, an author here, Jason Farman, in a book, Delayed Response, studies waiting, and, and he says, wait times can often reveal our hopes for what might come on the other side of waiting. These desires teach us about our hopes and also tell us about our present situation. He's not a believer, but he asks an insightful question that I think we can consider. He says, why do we want the future to be different? And in what ways? There's something about waiting that reveals our hearts, reveals to us, what do I really want? What really matters to me in the end? In essence, it reveals what we worship. Author Lori Ferguson Willard says this, Lack is strange in the world in which we live. We are trying so desperately to fill, fill, fill. And when we can't fill with the thing we want, we try to get another thing to stave off the pain. Boyfriends, babies, big screen TVs, better phones, none of us are immune from the fill. Emptiness points to insufficiency and none of us can bear that for long. Even the ones who love us most don't want to broach the subject of what emptiness might mean. There's something that happens in 1 Samuel 1, 9, and we maybe missed it in the narrative, but Hannah, in her grief, it says Hannah stood up. She did an act of action. She stood up, and you think, what is she going to do? What does she do? She goes to the temple to pray. Her action was not an action of self-reliance. It was an action of God-dependence, and not when things were well, when things were hard. She went and gave her grief to God and said, I trust you that prayer, prayer is our way of saying to God, I don't got this. I don't got this. I don't even know if I can go on. 
but I trust that you got this. And he always does. So let's conclude our theme here of, of, by looking at Romans. Oh, wait. So then we see that we wait upon God. The barrenness theme reveals that God will advance his purposes even in the face of the most seemingly hopeless, insurmountable, and sorrowful circumstances. That's why that narrative is there in Samuel. This theme reaches its greatest fulfillment in the first birth of Christ and second in the new birth of Christ from the grave and now is carried onward as believers as we are born again in Christ and wait upon God in the birth pains of this world, which Romans 8 will show us as we await the final new birth when Jesus cracks the sky and comes back to make all things new. God overturns barrenness in the Bible that, to show us that it is his power to end the tragic. And the greatest tragedy that he overturns, we see in the gospel. In the gospel, he overturns our self-worship and then brings us into new birth, not by something we did, but by something he can do. And he does, and then he does it in a resurrected Savior. And when he does it, he gives us his spirit to dwell in us forever. So then our worship can only change because of God's divine intervention. Hannah, again, we look at, it says, then Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies for I delight in your deliverance. There was no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Waiting reveals that we, for existential crisis, we can't fix or life hack some things that we can't save ourselves. In waiting, God reveals what we need most, which is him. Look what Hannah rejoices in. She doesn't rejoice and say, look at the son you gave me. She says, I delight in you. There's no one like you. So God uses our waiting to reorient us back to him. Again, Lori Ferguson Wilbert says this, or Willard, sorry, says this. God is doing something in this lack. He's doing something with the void. He's showing himself to be better than a spouse, better than children, better than security, and better than what our culture perceives as normal. He is the gift within the lack. So as we wait, let's look at Romans 8 and consider this. It says this in Romans 8, starting in verse 18. I consider, the Apostle Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, not for the first coming of Christ, but the second. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated, will be set free from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God, that God wants us to be free from self-worship and self trying to save ourselves. 
He did that in hope. It continues, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. God, we're waiting for you to end the tragic. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting for that hope. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Again, these themes of barrenness, of waiting, of hope remind us there are some things that only God can do. They remind us that he is worthy of waiting on. And in that, prayer then is our theological tether to God. Our life raft, it's what helps us through these times. This is what makes Christianity unique because only in Christ do we have that kind of access. That gives us unique spiritual power to endure even the hardest of circumstances because we have something that no one else has. We have hope and our hope is alive. Our hope rose from the dead. It can never die again. Nobody else has that. One of our favorite movies, The Incredibles, one of the, my favorite lines in this, our favorite lines in this is from the little boy. And Mr. Incredible comes home from his dead-end job and he looks at the little boy just waiting because he kind of, the boy knows kind of the Incredibles live there. And he says, well, what are you waiting for? And the child says, I don't know. Something amazing, I guess. Me too, kid. God does the ultimate something amazing when he breaks into this world as a baby at Christmas, when his son dies on the cross, and then when his son walks out of the grave. That's the thing we're waiting on. The greatest reversal of all, when God plays the reverse Uno card on sin and death and the devil at the cross, and in the resurrection, he raises Christ so that we can know our hope lives. God will do what he promised and he will be worth waiting for. As Emily Dickinson says in the poem, The Thing with Feathers, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. Waiting reveals to us, and the Christmas season in a sense reveals to us, there's something we're missing, which also reveals to us we have a hope our hope is Christ, the one who took the barrenness of this world and our own sinful self-worship upon his shoulders and took it to the cross and left it in the grave to give us something amazing, new birth in him. And in that, God asks not a crumb of us. That's what grace is. 
God does the thing that only he can do. So then prayer is a way of us showing our faith and our trust in that deliverance above everything else. And prayer, in prayer we get what we most need, which is more of God and the grace that is sufficient for us. So as we close, I just want to ask you, this Christmas season, are you waiting for something amazing? And let's not say I guess, let's say yes, and I did intend that to rhyme. Let's wait on Jesus, the only one who is truly worthy of our waiting. So if you're maybe, for, this is the first time, you're like, I didn't know this story. I didn't understand this gospel. I've been relying on myself for years and I'm just tired. I'm so tired of trying to save myself. I'm so tired of looking to that next thing, that next relationship, that next job, that approval from my parent, whatever it is. I, I'm tired of waiting. I want this righteousness in Christ today. Today can be the day that you say yes to Jesus for the first time. And for those of us who have said yes to Christ, but are waiting on something else to be our savior, today can be the day we turn back to him and we remember, Jesus, you are the something amazing. You're the only thing that can truly fulfill our hearts. One way we get to remember that every week is by taking communion. Here at Hope, we practice what's called open communion. Uh, we don't ask that you be a member of this church or any church. We just ask that you be a follower of Christ. And you, as we sing two songs, you could come and take of this communion, maybe for the first time. And the body, the bread that, that is a reminder of Christ's body broken for us. The juice, a reminder of Christ's blood shed for us, a reminder that God has done something amazing and will do something amazing. And we take that communion until he returns and we eat with him face to face. I'm gonna invite the worship team back up and close in prayer as we remember this God who remembers us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, a God who remembers. You remember us and in Christ have experienced the pains of this world, the pains that even our hearts feel right now. And in Christ, you have done something amazing. You have overturned our self-worship and given us a savior. So God, even as we close in this time today and as we go forth from this place, continue to overturn those things that we wait on, that we try to fill and take the place of you. God, be worshiped and glorified now in Jesus' name we pray, amen.